Welcome to Week in Review, where we recap issues and events pertinent to central Illinois. I'm WMBD News Director Cooper Banks. This week, the Illinois Department of Public Health began issuing alerts about the BA2 Omicron subvariant of COVID-19 and its slow spread in Illinois. Recently, we received an update on how things are looking here at home. Good afternoon. I'm Monica Hendrickson, Public Health Administrator for Peoria City County Health Department, and welcome to our COVID briefing. Uh, it has been a while since we've actually had a COVID briefing, um, which I think is actually good news. And um, would just uh, you know appreciate also that our media partners were able to reschedule for us to be able to touch base and kind of give an update about where we have been in a little bit over a month now in terms of our last discussion. So as of Friday, April 8th, the Tri-County currently has 93,380 cases to date. That includes Peoria County at 46,779, Tazewell County at 36,136, and Woodford County at 10,465. Sadly, we report over 1,140 deaths in the Tri-County, which includes 564 Peoria County residents to date, Tazewell County at 446, and Woodford County at 135. Some of the good news we've seen since the changes that happened in February, as well as the continuing monitoring, is that our Tri-County now only is averaging 24 new cases each day, and Peoria County is averaging 13 new cases each day. Now, we recognize that the data from these numbers is an underestimate because of testing capacity available through at-home testing. But even more so, when you look at Peoria County residents specifically, there are currently only 104 active cases in, the tri in Peoria County. That includes 98 individuals at home and isolating, but more importantly, only six Peoria County residents are currently hospitalized. Speaking of hospitalizations, OSF St. Francis Medical Center, UniPoint Health, Proctor, Methodist, and Pekin currently are reporting eight ICU beds in use and 20 non-ICU beds in use for COVID-19. They also report two deaths in the past 24 hours. We do expect OSF St. Francis and Unity Point Health to continue to have ICU capacity related to COVID-19 as well as non. And that again is because they are a regional hospital and they draw from our larger area. But the fact that our own residents only number six current hospitalizations is a great sign. Since we last spoke a couple of things, there has been changes to our testing options in our community. While the site at the Civic Center is no longer available, there is still availability through our local pharmacy programs, such as Walgreens and CVS, along with, depending on your symptoms, you will still be tested at any of the two healthcare systems, as well as Heartland Health Services. But more importantly, you can always access over-the-counter testing. If for any reason you are feeling symptomatic, especially now where we are seeing also our high levels of influenza kind of mirror the same path, 
take advantage of the at-home testing and pick up a test kit through our pharmacies, or you can still um, access your free kits through the federal government. There is a lot of questions that we've received regarding vaccinations, especially this idea of the next booster, your second booster, to talk more about not only the booster system as well as uh, the new type of variant that is also being monitored. We have Dr. Ahmad, infectious disease specialist from the University of Illinois College of Medicine, Peoria. Hello. Yeah, I'm Dr. Ahmad. I'm one of the infectious disease specialists working with the University of Illinois College of Medicine, and I'm a staff physician at OSF St. Francis. So um, I'll talk briefly about this, uh, the second boosters which were recently uh, approved. So on March 29, 2022, FDA amended the emergency use authorization for both the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccinations uh, for a second booster. So I'll try to keep it simple. Um, so if you're above the age of 50, and you've had the first booster, you can get a second booster dose with either Pfizer or Moderna vaccine at least four months after your first booster dose. So above the age of 50, either of those vaccinations can be used. If you're above the age of 12 years old and you have an immunocompromised state, for example, people who've had solid organ transplant or other conditions which make them immunocompromised at the same level, then age 12 and above, you can get the second booster with the Pfizer and BioTech vaccine at least four months after your last, after your first booster. If you're above the age of 18, then you can use the Moderna vaccine, the same regimen. So at least four months after your first one, and age above 18 with the same kind of immunocompromised state. So the difference between the Pfizer and the Moderna vaccine in this case of the second booster is the age. Age 12 and above, Pfizer. Age 18 and above is Moderna, if you have an immunocompromised state. If you're above the age of 50, then you can use either Pfizer or Moderna. So. These recommendations are kind of now um, more like um, you can decide your individual risk, what you have, look at your own comorbids, and then decide if you want to have these boosters. The, uh, uh, the amended authorization is based on the a summary of surveillance data provided to the FDA by the Ministry of Health of Israel, where they administered about 700,000 second booster doses of Pfizer and Pfizer BioTech COVID vaccine at least four months after the third dose in adults age 18 and older. Out of these 700,000, 600,000 were of 60 years of age or older. For the Moderna, they kind of extrapolated this experience from the Pfizer vaccine and from an independently conducted study. Uh, for about 120 participants uh, age 18 and older uh, with the booster four months after your last booster, and they found that there was no big safety concerns. And then there was another open-label trial in Israel where uh, they looked at Pfizer or Moderna in about 154 individuals, and they found that having these second booster increased the level of neutralizing antibodies uh, against uh, COVID, against Delta and Omicron variants compared to just having one booster. So um, 
Roughly 3% of the U.S. population is considered immunocompromised and is already eligible for a fourth dose. But this is, again, grouped with very specific medical conditions like cancer or organ transplant. This does not include the 54 million adults over 65. So at this point, the summary is if you're above the age of 50, again, you can look at your own individual risk, look at your own medical comorbidities, and then decide if you want to have the booster. Obviously, the older you are, the more medical issues you have, and especially if you're immunocompromised, deaf, you may want to consider the second booster. And for people less than age of 50, you know, so if you're above the age of 12, you can consider a Pfizer second booster above the age of 18 is Moderna booster. And again, I think for the most part, uh, they have left it to the individuals to make that choice. We have to remember these vaccinations, even with the first three doses, they're very effective at preventing you from getting moderate to severe disease. Severe enough from, it prevents, it definitely still provides you very effective protection against severe disease, hospitalization, and death. Yes, with the emergence of new variants, we found that they had these vaccines were less effective compared to the wild strain in preventing transmission of even mild disease, but overall these vaccinations are still very, very effective in preventing severe disease. So um, at this point, our, my message is going to be uh, look at your own history, look at what risk category you fall in, look at your own individual risk, what kind of activities you're engaging in, and then decide if a second booster is uh, right for you. The Biden administration extends the mask mandate for travelers who use federal transportation terminals, including ones like Wayne A. Downing Peoria International Airport. But we've also learned there's a sign of a return to normal when it comes to air travel. Bookings are sky high now. I caught up with Peoria Airport Director Greg Olson to learn more. Uh, Gene, by talking about essentially just catching up with what it's like to fly, um, and how the business seems to be recovering. How is that going now that we seem to be returning to a little more normalcy? I'm not going to call it post-COVID yet, but you could call it that. Well, um, it's interesting. Um, like our parking lot is starting to fill up again. Uh, and so when you, when you look around kind of the, this airport, you see signs of normalcy. Uh, and you see some reminders that, you know, we're still in a pandemic phase. Um, <clears throat> the, the mask mandate, which was supposed to expire, uh, on April 18th, just four days from now, uh, got extended to, uh, early May. I think May 2nd, uh, is the date. May 2nd or 3rd, I don't remember exactly. Um, and, uh, so that was a little disappointing. I think we were all hoping that that would go away. Um, Mm-hmm. So that's still one of the signs that we're still, you know, COVID impacted a little bit. Um, we just recently got our March passenger total numbers coming in. Um, we had in March, we had 52,965 total passengers travel through the airport. Mm. And to put that in perspective, um, it's the third time since the pandemic started that we've been over 50,000 Um and uh, it it is uh, the second highest month since the pandemic started. So July of uh, 2021, we had uh, 54,000 passengers. Hmm. 
but the way, when you look at it in terms of kind of percentage of normal, um, I, I have a little graph that I give to my board every month, and I look at what was the, the average of the last five normal years, so the, so leading up to 2019, um, and it, it kind of ranks third. Our best month so far was December of 21, where we were about 7% below that five-year normal. Mm-hmm. <clears throat> our, our second best month was July of 21, where we were about 11% below normal. And then this this month came in about 14% below normal, because March is usually uh, it's it's usually a contest between June, July, and March to see which is going to be our peak month for the year. What are your expectations now for travel into and out of Peoria's main airport in the months ahead, and especially as we get into the summer months? You know, we still have a full slate of destinations, uh, which I'm very pleased by. Um, to, to date, we haven't lost any uh, additional destinations after Delta left Peoria. Uh, Allegiant has actually added, I think, three destinations since the pandemic began. Um, and, and we're pretty pleased that we still have 12, uh, you know, direct flights that you can go to. Some of those are hubs where you can make connecting flights and others are, um, you know, fun places to go. Uh, so we're very pleased about that. I think the summer is probably, you know, it's always busier here in the summer um, because of people taking vacation trips and so on. Um, and I think it's going to be a little bit hectic because, uh, you know, the airlines are all feeling the impacts of staffing shortages, um, mm. you know, both in terms of flight attendants, uh, pilots, um, but as well, they're feeling shortages of ground staff, um, you know, that work at the stations. Oh. Um, and so everyone, all the airlines are operating on uh, much less reserve capacity. They don't have, you know, a lot of airplanes sitting around to be spares. They don't have a lot of pilots uh, sitting around to fly those spares. And so we've seen an increase in cancellations, and I think that's going to, you know, not not just here in Peoria. It's it's happening all over the, the yeah. nation. Well, um, I, I wanted to get and on I that. I think that's going to continue. Yeah, it, it, has that played out? Because you know, that if, issue of staffing was part of a, a larger uh, issue across many industries. Seeing it develop the way that it has for airlines, has any of that surprised you at all? Or were you expecting that to remain a problem even as we got to this point? It's not really surprising because the when the pandemic, you know, when the pandemic started, you know, if you look at April of 2020, um, we, we were down like 95% on our passenger count. We only had 2,400 passengers that whole month, mm-hmm. um, you know, and, and March – you know, this March being close to normal at 52,000, 53,000 passengers. So um, the, you, you can't fly empty airplanes around with no passengers in them for very long and survive. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and so they responded, the airlines responded to that by parking a lot of airplanes and laying off a lot of flight crew. Well, it takes a long time to get a flight crew back in the air. Yeah. You don't, you can't just, you know, call a guy and or, or call a pilot and say, uh, "Hey, report to work next Monday. You're going to fly the Chicago route." Yeah. Um, it just doesn't work that way. The 
the pilot has to have recency of experience, um, has to have a number of flight hours in the air or in a simulator. Uh, and normally an airline pilot just maintains that as they fly every day. Um, but, but when they've been parked for a long time, it takes a while to get them back in the air. So you can't just snap your fingers and create a flight crew. Um, and the same thing goes for the airplanes. You can't just pull an airplane out of the boneyard mm-hmm. and, um, and put it back into service. You have to, it has to go through maintenance checks, um, service, uh, things like that. And the, the airplane has to be gotten ready too. So it takes time, um, to do all those things. And, uh, I think they're, they're trying to go, you know, cause demand is picking back up. And I think they're trying to go through that as quickly as demand will allow. I think it's very, uh, how would you ca- characterize say, uh, the way that there seems to be a return to, okay, let's go ahead and feel all right about air travel. Um, seems like folks have a lot of money that they've saved up and are ready to go ahead and spend it, uh, maybe even no matter what the cost of the trip is going to be. I mean, uh, are you encouraged? Yeah, I would say I am encouraged. I, I think part of it is explainable by pent-up demand because for two years people were very hesitant to travel. Um and and so, you know, the itch to go somewhere is pretty strong right now mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, because things are starting to open up and people are starting to feel safer about it. But uh, um, I'm just hoping that that is sustainable um, and that, uh, you know, it seems to me, we don't have hard numbers on this, but it seems to me that there's been a big switch over from in the mix of travel, and, and we have a lot higher proportion of people who are traveling for leisure. Mm-hmm. Um, and so I'm I, I'm hoping that's not a bucket that gets filled up pretty quickly and then we see a tapering off. I'm hoping that people will start, you know, returning to travel, and I'm hoping the business traveler starts to, to travel again. How is that specifically? I was curious to ask about that anyway. Is business travel still lagging behind everything else in terms of frequency right now from what you can see, or is it picking back up along with everything else? Well, I think it's slowly picking back up. We, Like I said, we don't have any hard numbers, but we do hear anecdotes from you know friends and neighbors and business partners, and, mm-hmm. and we hear that people are starting to travel again for business. Um, but, you know, Zoom is there, and... Uh, all, all the other electronic uh, ways to do a conference. And so I think people are still making pretty heavy use of that. Yeah. Um, and one, one of the things that kind of leads me to think that business travel hasn't recovered yet is that, you know, Allegiant used to be 25 to 30% of our market <clears throat> and they're well, you know, a couple of percentage points either above or below, depending on the month, uh, a couple of percentage points above or below half. Ah. Uh, so their share of the market has really increased, mm-hmm. which tells me that, you know, that leisure has increased in terms of the percentage of our total market. A provision in Illinois Democrats' recently approved tax relief plan is a requirement for gas stations to tell people about it. And at least one leader in the industry seems to encourage gas station managers who don't like that to go ahead and sue the state. I caught up with Josh Sharp, president and CEO of the Illinois Fuel and Retail Association, about Governor J.B. Pritzker's celebrated tax relief bills. Yeah. Um, and one of them was 
this delay in an increase of the gas tax. I know that you've been highly critical about that. Why? Yeah. Uh, we feel that it doesn't really represent meaningful relief that, that people want to see with, with regard to gas taxes. Gas taxes in the state are, uh, you know, absurdly high uh, compared to our neighboring states and also compared to the rest of the nation. So there's other ways to go about doing something about gas taxes than just simply kicking a can down the road and guaranteeing two gas tax increases now in 2023. I think that I think you mentioned a very interesting point right off the bat right there about how the way you essentially you say this this categorizes this as moving the thing to next year and potentially making it worse next year. That's what I'm hearing you say. Yeah. Absolutely. I think next year people don't realize there's two gas tax increases coming now in 2023. That's really, you know, uh, a lot of press conferences have talked about the relief contained in this bill, what it does. The real story is now there's going to be two gas tax increases in 2023. They're going Uh, up twice. You are raising awareness about one other seemingly small thing. Tell us about it. Uh, I assume you're talking about the signs now that are going to be posted or going to be required to be posted. Gas stations are going to be required to post a certain notification. Is that right? Explain what it is. Yeah, that's right. Also, as part of this legislation, um, fuel retailers across Illinois will be uh, forced under the under the penalty of law and, and a substantial fine, so it's both a criminal offense and a fine, uh, to post notification that Illinois is um, – Delaying, I, I, I believe that's my words, though, delaying. I believe there's actual uh, verbiage in the bill that has a different uh, required, you know, language to be posted. I don't recall exactly what it is, but essentially we're supposed to make motorists uh, aware of this delay in the gas tax increase. Uh, and if we don't, uh, we face uh, $500 a day fines uh, at each location and uh, criminal penalty. It's a petty offense, which, <laughs> I mean, it's not exactly a misdemeanor or a felony, but a petty offense is, is a criminal offense in the state. It's, uh, I think, a really shocking uh, part of that piece of legislation. I, I would ask you be a stupid question, but one that I want to ask is for you to explain how that is so, f- how it is frustrating, and and why it's so frustrating seeing things from your perspective being forced to do a thing like that. Yeah, <clears throat> I think it's so frustrating because typically legislators. Um, even though sometimes they get criticized, I think, for, you know, making goofy decisions. I just think this decision to include this in the bill is so, on its face, uh, unconstitutional. Um, something we don't do in this state or in this country is force uh, businesses into speech that they disagree with or they don't want to participate in. Um, the other part of the bill relating to grocery taxes made that requirement um, merely uh, a recommendation. There's no fine or penalty associated with it. So they were treated much differently than this industry. This industry, however, again, will face criminal penalties and fines if we don't comply with posting a sign. Um, that's just not right. And I think, I think most people realize that that's not that's – fundamentally, that's not how Illinois or any other state is supposed to do business. You why, can't mandate speech in this country or this state. Why is it you would surmise, as it's news to me what you just said, that the groceries stores are not being treated with the same – no, requirements. Why would that be the case? I think uh, legislators are so fearful of the gas tax as a uh, as a campaign issue this year, um, hmm. and they should be fearful because most of those legislators and, and the governor 
Uh, we're here in 2019 and are responsible for doubling Illinois' gas tax. Hmm. Uh, not just in 2019, but it's gone up twice since then. So they've raised the gas tax three times now since 2019. And I think they're very fearful of um, perhaps the price they might pay at the ballot box in November. And I think that's why we were singled out for the, for the fines or penalties if we didn't post the sign. You're raising awareness about it. I'm curious, of course, to see about whether or not you intend to take any sort of action, make any sort of recommendations. What is it that you might do in the wake of uh, this mandate, you might say? Uh, I think it's highly likely that we're headed to court on the mandate. There's really nothing we can do about the policy decision to delay the gas tax. We, of course, were opposed to it. We don't think it's meaningful reform, but... You know, the law is the law there. Hmm. However, when it comes time to talk about, you know, forcing businesses into essentially posting free campaign advertising, uh, we have to draw the line somewhere. And, you know, it's unfortunate, but, you know, we have to protect our members. We can't leave them open to, you know, criminal penalties or, uh, you know, $500 fines. So I think we're likely headed to court on that issue. How, you know, how... Just out of curiosity, and I'll nerd out... I nerd out on process stuff and system stuff is... How would that, would that be you as an organization help to find representation for gas stations mm-hmm. that decide to take their matters to court? Uh, without getting into too much detail, I mean, I really can't go into too much sure. detail. Sure, uh, yeah, yeah, Because it's pending litigation. But I can tell you, it would likely be um, a member of ours serving as a plaintiff with the association co-listed as, as a plaintiff as well versus the state of Illinois. Okay. And uh, we have not made any further decision beyond really, you know, where to file or, you know, what exactly the suit might say uh, at this time. What are the chances that it could become a class action in your estimation if you were to take um, one? I'm not. I'm really unsure about a class action status at this point. Yeah, okay. And then uh, I suppose what is it that in such pursuits members might seek as compensation? What would they want in these cases, would you say? Well, ideally, the first part of the lawsuit will be for injunctive relief. Mm-hmm. In other words, we will hopefully stop the state from, from doing this at all, mm-hmm. and we won't need relief. Uh, however, if we go down this road and perhaps there's you know future litigation where this, where this doesn't get settled, and in the meantime, we do have to incur you know fines, penalties, financial costs of you know developing these fines and distributing them across you know the thousands of gas pumps in the state, then yeah, we would absolutely seek financial relief in that case. Do you think that state government leaders who put this in place knew court fights were probably coming on it? If they didn't know, they should have known. We were uh, very we were very clear in a message uh, before this passed. I think uh, up to two days before with legislators that you know I, we understand what you're trying to do here, but, but this isn't going to fly. And uh, if it goes into a, a greater kind of you know omnibus budget type of a piece of legislation will likely end up in court. So we, we were very clear about that, and unfortunately they chose to include it anyway. I would ask you to comment on the larger gripe that Republicans had, um, minority party members had about, I would state it as minority party because I will say from a third-party viewpoint where I'm sitting, it sure seemed like nobody got a lot of time to read a 3,500-page bill on the yeah. budget and everything what do you think about the way this uh this all uh was pushed uh, into being um unfortunately that's typical for springfield that's how springfield does 
the end of year, you could say budget, budget implementation bill, tax credits, it gets done at the last minute and it usually gets done in the dead of night. Um, you know, I think people should obviously be opposed to that is, is, is to how the process works in Springfield. You know, the budget doesn't need to pass, it, you know, four in the morning uh, mm-hmm. every year. Unfortunately, that's ultimately what happens. I agree with the Republicans' frustration that, you know, that's, that, that's a problem with the process, getting a bill 10, 15 minutes before you're supposed to vote on it, and it's 3,500 pages. Uh, it's not ideally how the how the process should work in Springfield. <laughs> I, I would say here that I've seen things last till four in the morning because Democrats and Republicans are arguing about it for so long, but I've not yeah. seen it last till four in the morning. I, I, yes, I will say, I, would, I think there was a lot of surprise this year, especially because a budget deal seemed to be reached, you know, early as far as Springfield standards go, approximately, yeah. I think, 48 hours before German. There was an agreement, and then we thought during the day on Saturday things would move, but Nothing started to move on Saturday until about five or six o'clock, and then it lasted twelve hours, you know, through the night. So, yeah. again, I, it's not probably the best way to run state government, but it seems to be the way that it has always uh, it, the way business has always been done in Springfield. A local effort to dramatically transform the old county-owned Headington Oaks property, a former long-term care facility. The project to bring new life at the building will now also receive an injection of millions in federal grants. We learned much more at a news conference in the last week, featuring, among others, Central Illinois Republican Congressman Darren LaHood. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Keith Knepp. I'm the president and CEO of Unity Point Health here in Central Illinois. I'm excited and grateful to have the opportunity to be here with you today and to be here with Congressman Darren LaHood as we announce federal funding support for the Young Minds Project that we've been talking so much about these last few weeks in our community. We're grateful for all the support we've received, but uh, as you're going to hear, a major uh, grant coming to us from the federal government for this project, thanks to the hard work of Congressman LaHood and his team. Unity Point Health here in Central Illinois, uh, specifically Methodist and Proctor, and the Community Mental Health Services from HSC and Taswood, coming together to form Unity Place has been such an important part of our commitment to this community. But we have catastrophic needs in this area right now. You've all been covering and everybody's been watching the pandemic, but in the meantime, we have this growing epidemic of behavioral health. It existed before the pandemic, it's even worse today. And uh, our emergency room is straining, we have capacity challenges and uh, just the need for more services and better services to meet the community in this area. So I'd like to uh, turn over the microphone here to Mary Sparks Thompson. Mary is the new president of Unity Place, and uh, she's going to talk a little bit about the Young Minds Project and hopefully our use of the Headington Oaks facility to help to meet that need. Mary. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm so excited to be here. Again, my name is Mary Thompson, and I'm here to talk a little bit about the Headington Oaks Project. So what we're envisioning for this new facility is that we would have hospital beds for children and adolescents, but what makes this project really unique is the scope of outpatient services that we hope to have and plan to have at this new facility, and then also places for community partners who also serve children and their families to cohabitate that space with us. We envision a one-stop shop, so to speak, for children and families with behavioral uh, and substance use disorder needs. 
which is extremely unique. So our families can return to the same place with familiar faces and a familiar setting. So we're just really thrilled to be able to participate um, with our community partners to expand not only what Unity Place currently does, but to involve others in that endeavor. So again, it's going to be a very unique project. We want it to be one of a kind and the best in the country right here in central Illinois. I think you all know the need for behavioral health and substance use disorder support is greater than ever. And so we're just thrilled to be able to expand our offerings to meet that need and to continue to support the children and youth in our, in our central Illinois region. So again, thank you very much. And I think Representative Wood, it's your turn. Mike's here. Oh, Mike's. Okay. Good afternoon, everyone. Um, Mike Eunice. I'm the vice president of the Central Illinois Foundation here at Unity Point Health. You know, when we kicked off the Young Minds Project public campaign last month, it has been really humbling and rewarding uh, to see the outpouring of support that has come in because of this project. Uh, it has also been remarkable to witness and read uh, some of the stories from parents that have come in uh, that have been struggling uh, with for finding the, the right uh, help and place for, for their child. Uh, some didn't end well, unfortunately. Uh, but this project is, as Mary said, so unique, and it is much more than just a building. It is a place where we are going to be able to put together um, a one-of-a-kind transformational state-of-the-art facility to reshape the way mental health services are provided here in central Illinois. We really think it has the opportunity uh, to become a model uh, all across the country. And so for Congressman LaHood to be here today um, is remarkable, and it, it goes without saying that we are beyond grateful uh, for his hard work uh, to be able to help us uh, with this um, significant grant that is going to help uh, the Young Minds Project uh, get down the field uh, quite a bit. So without further ado, I'd like to turn it over to Congressman LaHood. Well, thank you, Mike, and thank you, Keith and Mary. It's a pleasure to be here at Unity Point uh, to announce the, the $2 million federal grant, and I'm awful proud uh, that the federal government was able to, uh, through the legislative process, to have this $2 million grant. And as Keith alluded to, uh, and Mike and Mary also, the need in our community for behavioral, behavioral health services and mental health services. It's a long time coming in this community. It's been talked about for roughly 20 to 25 years. Um, and to see it come together under the umbrella of Unity Point is really remarkable. And so a little over a year ago, uh, when Unity Point came to us and asked for this community funding project. That's what it was funded under. Um, really, the core of community funding projects at the federal level is uh, projects and federal dollars that are going to help communities. Uh, and really, this was an easy sell. When we saw the application, we went through it with Unity Point, we laid it out, and we brought it through the legislative process, the appropriations process. What this will do for our community is transformational. It's going to help at every level, families, children, youth, uh, when you see the build out and what's going to transpire over at Headington Oaks, it's going to be re remarkable. And I would also just say from a regional standpoint, uh, there is nothing uh, south of I-80 uh, and up from St. Louis that is going to be able to provide the type of services that we're going to have here. It's going to be state of the art. And so 
the federal government uh, played a small role in this, $2 million, but it's still $2 million of taxpayer money. But it's a collaboration from the state, from our locals here at the county level, the private sector dollars coming together for this need in our community. And so I was proud to advocate for this in Washington, D.C., and proud to help out our community here. But it also should go without saying the leadership here at Unity Point from Keith on down and their board is is the the reason why this got done. Uh, Our belief in what this is going to provide for the community uh, is part of the reason why I'm here today and proud to support it. So, um, again, happy to be a part of it. It is. Under the appropriations process last year was community funding projects, uh, and that was the application that was made uh, that we put forth on behalf of Unity Point. What aspect of the project should residents be most excited about? I think the most important thing just out of the gate is the original vision of this project, uh, which we've had in the works for years, and that is to both expand and improve the quality of the hospital-based services that we can provide. So those are children and adolescents that need to be in an inpatient setting uh, because of the severity of their uh, mental uh, health uh, uh, diagnosis. but that's, uh, you know, a close second is the fact that uh, we have so many other community agencies and uh, governmental partners that are interested in coming to the table with us and then, you know, surrounding those hospital-based services with all the other pieces that need to go with it. I just say one thing on that. One thing that you hear in our community constantly, whether it's folks that work at the children's home or people at the Center for Prevention and Abuse or our police officers are, there's no place for our youth and adolescents when it comes to mental illness for them to get the treatment they can. This is going to all change under this, this program and what's going to happen here. And so when you look at the broad-based need in our community by many different sectors, and I would also just say, uh, you know, through the pandemic, I think what we've seen over the last two years is, you know, the, the acute nature of mental illness for many of our kids that are in school, whether it's dealing with masks, being out of school, dealing with, you know, the next level of schooling and, and the stress and anxiety. I think it's been highlighted on a lot of people's minds, but you see that throughout the, the partners that Keith talked about in our community that deal with youth and adolescents, and this is going to help to remedy that. That does it for this edition of Week in Review. Join us at this time next week on this Midwest 360 station for another recap of some of the biggest issues and events in central Illinois. You don't have to wait for Week in Review to get the lowdown on what's happening in central Illinois. For instant news 24-7, follow us at 1470 100.3 WMBD on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram, and at 1470WMBD.com. I'm Cooper Banks, WMBD News.